Now let's turn to the word of the Lord. The uh, passage before us is found in Acts chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verse 42. We've been on this verse for the past few weeks, and today I'm going to be looking at common misconceptions in regards to Holy Communion. The verse in Acts 2.42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would grant us grace, grace to understand, grace to draw near, grace to have our preconceived ideas put aside, grace to receive your truth. Pray for light for all those, Lord, who seek enlightenment. For only the Holy Spirit, the author of these words, can give us light. We depend on you, O Father. And I praise you and I thank you for this opportunity in sharing your precious word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. It's easy for us to take for granted that which is precious. If we've learned anything during COVID-19, is that the small things are really very important. What do I mean by small things? Well, did it ever occur to anyone over a year ago that we would long for an embrace? When we were free to kiss each other, kiss our grandkids, our children, our loved ones, did it ever cross our minds that one day, a kiss would be a thing of the past. That a mere handshake could be the means of passing on a virus to someone we loved, possibly killing them. And that we would no longer see someone smile because of the masks that we now wear. None of us ever imagined that such a day would ever come. Here we are, one year later, and we find ourselves still living under these restrictions. No one calls them enjoyable. No one was planning for these measures to continue for so many months. We didn't say, I look forward to no longer hugging my loved one. There are people who I used to hug commonly, regularly, and I can't anymore. Many of us find ourselves exactly in those shoes. No one says, I desire curfews and closed restaurants. I want businesses to shut down and social events to stop. No one says that. We don't want any of it. We want it all to go away. For all of us, it's just like a bad dream. We just want to wake up and say, wow, thank goodness the dream is over. But let's imagine for a moment that someone would come into our lives and say, I want you to never forget COVID-19. I never want you to forget this moment. I never want this year to escape from your mind. You must tell your kids and everyone what took place throughout this year. I want it to always remain alive. The memory of COVID-19 must never die. When things go back to normal, remember COVID-19. What would you say to that? Well, you would say, you're out of your mind. I never want to remember this day. I want to forget it. I want to forget the whole year, these terrible months of COVID-19. The early church was told to keep something alive, a memory that was supposed to be important and never to let die. 
They were told to always remember the most horrific moment in Israel's history. The night they killed their own Messiah. Everyone did everything to forget. Forget Jesus. Forget his death. It's a thing of the past, they said. Except Christians. Christians were told never to forget. In fact, that's why it says they continually, those who believed, continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The early church devoted themselves to breaking bread. Why does Luke speak about breaking bread? He repeats it, in fact, in verse 46, where we read, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Breaking bread. What is Luke talking about? This expression has two meanings when you read the New Testament. First, it meant enjoying a meal with God's blessings. Whenever a Jewish family would come together for a meal, the head of the household would take the bread, a staple in every Jewish home, break it, and offer this prayer to God. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. This was the blessing that the head of the household would offer to God in the presence of everyone who was ready to eat. And then they would enjoy the meal and each other's company. However, the breaking of bread for the early Christians took on an even greater significance. The early Christians would bring into the mealtime the forbidden memory. To this day, the crucifixion of Jesus remains the forbidden topic in all homes of unbelieving Jews. So why is breaking bread so important? Everyone was hush about the the death of Christ. Everyone was told, it happened, let's not talk about it. It's a thing of the past, forget it. Everyone but Christians. The early Jewish believers celebrated the cross of Christ, especially when coming together for a meal. It would be like me celebrating COVID-19. After it was finally over, me bringing up the topic of COVID-19 and how I lost my brother in April of 2020 and other people that I know that passed away. Now, we'd be bringing this up every time we would have a meal. What would you say about that? You eventually say, enough. We don't want to hear it anymore. But you see, the Christian's... Never stopped. That's what Luke is driving at. While every other Jew was trying very hard to forget Jesus and the death and the crucifixion and everything associated with Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, believers were keeping the memory of Christ and his death alive every time they would come together for a meal. They not only thanked God for daily bread, but most importantly, they thanked God for the bread of life 
that had come down from heaven, Jesus the Savior. They weren't devoted simply to eating and enjoying each other's company. They were devoted to the most horrific event of Jewish history, the crucifixion of the Messiah, the tragedy that had become a victory because Jesus had risen from the dead. And just before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus met with his disciples for the last Passover meal. The Passover was a Jewish holiday, a feast, celebrated by all Jews to commemorate their exodus from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. It was during this last Passover meal that Jesus gathered his disciples in a room and said the following in Luke 22, verse 19, we read, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. As they were celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus said these profound words to the apostles. Did the apostles understand? No, they didn't. They had no clue until Jesus resurrected. Then it all made sense. He, Jesus, is the Passover lamb. Through his death, we are delivered from the wrath to come. Just like the Old Testament people were delivered from the angel of death when they would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel, so now those who believe in Jesus as the Passover lamb escape the judgment, the wrath to come in later, in the end of times. Those first believers who received Peter's message after Pentecost not only devoted themselves to the word of God and to fellowship, which is now the new holy ground, but to the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. Like you say, how did they proclaim the gospel? Through a meal. The meal was an ordinary moment, but a focal moment in the lives of every Jew. Still today in the Middle East, everything centers around a meal. It's when members of a family come together to share food, laughter, struggles, and they bond together. It's a special time. Well, the church was not content to keep the story of the cross to themselves. Every meal became an occasion for the proclamation of the gospel. Every meal was used to share the cross. They would take the bread and say, this reminds us of the broken body of Christ. Because every home had bread. They would take the wine because every home had wine. And they would say, this reminds us of the shed blood for our sins. They were talking about the new covenant. See, the old covenant was something that had been established with Moses. But now the new covenant had been established and cut with the death of Christ. It's the new covenant of grace. It was totally different than the old one. It was remarkable. We are saved from wrath to come. Imagine every mealtime I walk into the house and I sit down and I speak about COVID-19. This is after COVID-19 is over. And I speak about it 
on one day, and then another day, then a second day, then a third day, then a fourth day. You would have enough and say, I'm not going to eat with you guys anymore. That's what they were doing. No wonder every other Jew was being really disturbed by this. In fact, the rulers were so disturbed that they threatened the apostles because they were the leaders of the church. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, we read that they were called before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling Jewish class. They were the supreme court of the Jews. And they spoke to the apostles in this way. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This man's blood, that's what disturbed them. They were guilty. They felt the guilt. You see, the death of Jesus, the forbidden topic, disturbed them. And the disciples kept talking about this death over and over. And then how Jesus had risen from the dead. Those that would believe in their Messiah, who had died for them on the cross, would be forgiven. This bothered every other Jew. But not the believing Jews. This was their story. This was their song. This was their delight. This was their celebration. And they would bring it out over and over at every meal. They would take the bread, take the the wine, and keep talking about the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of the Savior. You see, if you talk about Jesus as a teacher, people will say that. Yes, he was. If you talk about Jesus as a miracle worker, as a prophet, as a simple man, as one who cared for the poor, as an iconoclast, as a revolutionary, people will say, yeah, no problem. But if you talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God, people will not agree. People don't want to talk about the cross, except for Christians. Christians love the message of the cross. They know that he, Jesus, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the sins, plural, but the sin. Which sin? The original sin. Jesus is the second Adam who came to overturn, reverse what the first Adam did. This is the message of the gospel. And the temptation for us is to not emphasize it enough. It's to make the gospel a secondary or a tertiary thing. That is sad. Because many churches do that. Did the apostles fill the Jerusalem with the message of Christ's crucifixion? Well, they did preach, but they couldn't have filled Jerusalem. There were only 12 men. So how did the gospel spread so quickly throughout Jerusalem and Judea? How did the, the message of Jesus being the Lamb of God who came to die for our sins, he is now the risen Son of God, who is seated at the right hand of God. How did this message spread so rapidly? Because the church used a meal, an ordinary meal. The church did not need shows, props, theater, acting, movies, special lighting, gifted speakers to spread the message. All they needed was a meal and nothing more. A meal. And not only once a year, like Passover, but every meal. They used every meal to speak about Jesus. We live in a time 
when people want to be amazed. We constantly seek for new ways to stimulate our senses. We want our ears to be tickled by great sounds, great music, our sight to be astonished with mind-blowing visual effects. Newer games are coming out so that people can be carried away and swept away. We want our buds, our taste buds to explode with out-of-this-world cuisine. We constantly want our senses to be brought to new and undiscovered level of excitement. We want to be wowed. That's the big word now. Wow me. Jesus commanded his church not to wow anybody. <laughs> to make known the amazing gospel using a meal. Bread and wine. Just use that. That's all. Simplicity. The beauty of Holy Supper. We see the church devoted to the word of God. Yes, devoted to fellowship, which is the new holy ground. And yes, lastly, devoted to making the gospel known using ordinary means, a meal. So now that we looked at why breaking of bread is so important, let's look at are there any special powers in the elements? Unfortunately, many church leaders, and especially the Roman Catholic Church, have taken the focus of the glorious message of the gospel and shifted it to the elements. They have ascribed to the elements special powers. Many evangelicals do the same unknowingly. But this is something Jesus never did, nor the apostles. This interpretation of the elements being endued with special powers is based on a wrong understanding of John 6. Let me read the passage. From verse 52 we read, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Now, everyone agrees that Jesus was not endorsing cannibalism. He wasn't saying, eat me. Of course not. But unfortunately, many scholars, in reading this passage, interpret these words to mean that the elements themselves, the bread and the wine of Holy Communion or the Eucharist, are sacred and endued with special powers. So how could anyone take the words of Jesus to mean that we are to look at the elements as seeing them as powerful? People actually think that that is true because the church teaches a doctrine, the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, called transubstantiation. And it basically means that the bread turns into the body of Christ when a Eucharistic prayer is offered by a priest. That the wine turns into the blood of Christ. And so the recipient of the 
bread and the wine, receive Christ that way. This is nothing more than eisegesis. It's reading into the text something that is not there. In fact, it's mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism means I can connect with the supernatural through an item. You look, go to India, and Buddhism, and Hinduism, go to South America. There are many people where, that believe in animism, and that's mysticism. Basically, they turn to a tree, and they think that in the tree there is some kind of supernatural life. That in an animal, there's supernatural life. That in a flower, and so forth. That in the sun and the stars, there's supernatural life. Because if they can connect with that tree, and through it, they can connect with deity. Mysticism. And that is a teaching that has been incorporated into Holy Communion, into the teaching of the Holy Supper. Holy Communion is first the means established by Christ to make the gospel known. When I gather a fellow believers, I talk about the very thing that no one wants me to talk about, which is the cross. That's Holy Communion. It's talking about the cross. It's proclaiming the cross. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Let's read it together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. When we come together for the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming his death. We've established that. That's clear from Scripture. Jesus, if you look at the gospel, called himself the door. Does it mean that he's on a hinge? He called himself the way, the shepherd, the vine, bread, light. These are metaphors. The same principle of hermeneutics must be applied to the passage of John chapter 6. Never once did Jesus imply that bread and wine would become the means of receiving grace. We never see this meaning anywhere in the epistles. Grace is received only one way, one way alone. Grace is received by faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, how do you receive saving grace? Through faith. It's not through elements. That's mysticism. If you read the account of Luke, which is written in chronological order, by the way, you'll discover that Judas was present when Jesus instituted Holy Communion. But it is the Gospel of John that tells us something very unique. After Jesus instituted Holy Communion, we're told in John chapter 13. So when Jesus had dipped the piece of bread, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after this, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do it quickly. Did we read those words carefully? After Jesus instituted the Holy Supper at the Passover, the last Passover meal, okay, after he instituted the Eucharist, if you want to call it that, we see Satan entering the heart of Judas. Shouldn't the Eucharist, served by Jesus himself, have prevented Judas from, from carrying out his dastardly act? 
shouldn't it have kept Satan at bay? Jesus did not believe, or rather Judas did not believe, and therefore Satan was free to enter him. He was, had no faith. There is no power in the elements. If you don't believe in the gospel, you can take all the Eucharists, all the wafers, all the Holy Communion you want, you will remain lost and then appear before the great white throne for judgment. So we looked at why breaking of bread was important to proclaim the gospel, to make it known, to repeat this glorious message that Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for our sins and is now alive. And then secondly, we saw that there are no special powers in the elements. The power is in faith, in the Word. When we exercise faith in God's Word, that's when we receive saving grace. So the last question, is there anything sacred at Holy Communion? If I were to ask you that, what is sacred at Holy Communion? What what exactly? Besides your faith, which the Lord deems as very precious, there's one other thing that is very precious at Holy Communion. God's people. You cannot have Holy Communion on your own. You can pray on your own. You can read scriptures on your own, but you cannot have Holy Communion on your own. You don't find it anywhere in Scripture. We've already seen that for Holy Communion to be valid, there must be the proclamation of the gospel. The focus is on the gospel, not on the elements. There's nothing sacred about the elements. But it is equally true that the church is sacred. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, Verse 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Did you get this? This is amazing. See, in our day, Christians take Holy Communion as though it is a private and personal experience. Right? That's what happens in many churches. A person comes in and he wants to take the element and it's between him and God, he says. That's wrong. That is not holy communion. That is self-centeredness. Because like I said earlier, you cannot take holy communion alone. You pray alone when you're you're home alone. You can uh, read scriptures when you're on your own. But when it comes to holy communion... It is done with the church, with those who are neither Jew nor Greek. They're neither slave nor free, neither male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. In scriptures, you'll never see the apostles or any church member actually taking Holy Communion alone. You see them praying alone or reading scripture alone, but never taking Holy Communion alone. Imagine, let's go back in time. and We walk into a church gathered in a home. And you would walk in and see these saints. That's what Paul calls them, saints. Gathered. No building. You would see masters and slaves. You would see Jews and Gentiles. You would see male and female. You would see rich and poor, educated and uneducated, all worshiping Christ together, all breaking bread together and confirming their oneness 
in Christ with the Holy Supper. You see, they were saying, we are all sinners. We deserve death. But by his grace, we've been saved. And our social distinctions are irrelevant. What matters is the new status we have in Christ. What is the new status we have in Christ? See, it doesn't matter if I'm, what my skin color is. It doesn't matter what my uh, degrees are. It doesn't matter who I am in this world. What matters for God's children, for the people of God, is our new status. And 1 John chapter 3 tells us what that status is. This lasting and glorious status. 1 John 3.1 See how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called children of God. In fact, that is what we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. This truth that we are children of God is directly linked to the message of the gospel. Because of Jesus' death, we are now children of God. It could never have happened any other way. We're not born to this world as children of God. We become children of God the moment we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the moment we are given new birth. If it wasn't for Christ's death, we would still be children of disobedience and hopelessly lost and under the wrath of God. That's where everyone is destined to outside of Christ. So what is sacred? The elements? The bread? The wine? No. I mean, sure, we treat it with respect like you would in your own house. You don't take bread and just dump it. You treat it with respect. But that is not what is sacred. That is not what is sacred. What is sacred is the church. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. You see, in those days, the Jews were separated from the Gentiles, the slaves from the master, the rich from the poor, the, the uh, educated from the uneducated. This was, this was common, and it's still common today. There's some countries where class distinction is upheld and will never be abolished. In Christ, class distinction come down. They become insignificant. doesn't matter what you are in this world. What matters is what we are in Christ, a new creation. Before, taking, before becoming a Christian, we were broken and we were divided. In Christ, our social distance, distinctions dissolve completely. We become one loaf. He was broken so that we no longer remain fragmented, divided, and broken. What defines us now is not who we are in the eyes of the world, but who we are in Christ. This is the sacredness of God's people. The sacredness that does not lie in the elements. The power does not lie in the bread or the wine. The power is in the proclamation of the gospel and faith in that gospel. The sacredness lies in the importance and significance of the body of Christ because the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. Too often, we treat a piece of bread with utmost care. And we take that wafer, we take that bread as though it's so sacred. And at the same time, we mistreat our brothers. We hold them in contempt. We look down on others. We separate ourselves from a certain class of people. 
We have little or no regard for our brother. That's what angers the Lord. He doesn't care if I treat the bread with some kind of respect and hold the wine and the chalice with some kind of reverence. He doesn't care. He's not going to judge me on the way I hold the chalice. He will judge me on the way I treat my brother. God is deeply concerned on how I treat my brothers and sisters, especially those who are weak, especially those who are nobody and insignificant and poor and whatever other situations that may make them less valuable in the eyes of society. The church is sacred to the Lord. The church is the Lord's bride. This is the new holy ground, and therefore we are to esteem each other more than ourselves, as Paul writes in his letter to Philippians. So to wrap it up, through the elements we proclaim the gospel. If our focus is not on making the gospel known when we come together for Holy Communion, we're simply having a snack and nothing more. It's meaningless. Secondly, the power is not in the elements. The elements can do nothing. We receive nothing through the elements. It's in the gospel. Faith in the word, the truth of the gospel. Anything else besides that is mysticism, which ultimately leads to self-deception. And thirdly, what is sacred at Holy Communion is God's people. God's people. More than anything else, we must treat each other with the highest regard. We must love each other, as Jesus said, as he loved us. Our words towards each other, our deeds, our attitudes matter to God. He observes and we will be judged by them. God is not the least bit interested in how we treat the bread and the cup, but he is supremely concerned about how we treat each other. May our love for each other be a sweet-smelling aroma that rises to our Lord, the bridegroom of the church. Let us pray. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts for the Savior, our Lord, the heavenly bridegroom. And we know that when we come together and we proclaim the gospel and we treat each other with respect and we take care of each other and we remember that we were sinners deserving of death and that now we do not pay attention to class distinctions. That pleases you. And the bridegroom, Lord, is pleased and becomes very present at that moment with us. And so I pray that we would remember these truths every time we come together, that we would not be careless, that we would not take the bread and uh, the cup in an unworthy manner, but that we would honor you and honor your name every time we do so. Those who don't know you, Lord, draw them to yourself this very moment. And this we ask for your namesake, for your glory. Amen.